My name is James Dennis. I'm one of the elders here. And um, tonight we are going to jump into Judges chapter 20. Um, everyone gets a prize if they stay awake. Okay, so that's, it's a chapter, man. Um, but it's a chapter in the Word. And all the Word is written for our instruction, isn't it? And there's some instruction in here tonight. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people, united as one unto the Lord. We come here, Lord, with a singular purpose, that we would meet with you, that we would become more like you, that we would fulfill the original meaning of the word Christians to become little Christs, imitators of you in everything that we do. So meet us as we gather together in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> we are in the middle of a narrative that covers the last three chapters of the book of Judges. Judges 19, Judges 20, that's tonight, and then Judges 21 next week, and then we will be done with the book of Judges. It's okay to say amen, that works for me too. These three chapters are one of the darkest sections of scripture in the entire Bible. If you remember last week, chapter 19, we really kicked this story off. We were into, introduced to this guy. He's a Levite. He's supposed to be a priest. He's not a very good priest. In fact, he has a concubine, which he shouldn't have done. And this concubine cheats on him, if you remember. And then she runs off, and she lives with her father for four months. And so this Levite, he goes. He goes to go get his concubine, stays with the father for a few days, and then he's traveling home. And as he's traveling home, they pass by one city, and his, his servant says, hey, we should stay in that city. And he goes, no, 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 we're going to go on. We're going to go on to Gilead. I want to stay in the city of a Benjaminites, Benjaminites because they're Israelites. And they come into that city, and there's, there's no one to take them in. There's no hospitality in that city as there should have been. And one old man grabs them and pulls them into his house, and when it gets dark, it says that the the fellows of the town came out and they banged on the door. And they said, send that traveler out so that we may know him in a Sodom and Gomorrah sense of the word. And so instead of going out, instead of just saying, no, you must leave, instead of fighting them off and protecting his family, he just takes his concubine and sends her out the door. And they abuse her all night long and in the morning she is dead. It's a great story. So this Levite takes the concubine, loads her up on his donkey, takes her home, and then cuts her up into a bunch of pieces, as you do, and mails them to all the tribes of Israel to say, look at the tragedy that was done. Look at this horrible thing that was done by the city of Gilead in Benjamin. And then we pick up the story this week. And here's what we're going to see this week. All the people of Israel, they get those pieces of body parts and they're like, something is up. So they all come together for an emergency gathering. They have this trial and they decide the people of Gilead are guilty. We are going to go get them. And so they go to go get the Gileads, the people from Gilead, and the Benjamites say, no, 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 they're our brethren. You're going to have to go through us. So we end up with a civil war in Israel. 
400,000 people from the Israelites, 26,000 people from the Benjamites, and they clash. And on day one, the Benjamites wipe the floor with the Israelites. And then they go out to battle again. And day two, the Benjamites wipe the floor with the Israelites. And then you go to battle day three, and finally the Israelites have victory, but nothing's really been accomplished. By the end of this chapter, 65,000 Israelites are dead. That's more Americans than died in Vietnam War in three days. There are bodies everywhere, and nothing's been accomplished. Because when you get to this next chapter, here's what you're going to see, a story that started out terribly with a rape in chapter 19 ends with a bunch of rapes in chapter 21. And so you got to stand back and be like, what? why is this in the Bible? Like, and why are we studying it? Like, what are we doing? Well, first off, it's in the Bible because it happened. It's Israel's history and they need to be aware of it. But second of all, it's in the Bible because it's a warning to us. See, these three chapters are bookended by this saying, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. And it's supposed to be a warning to us that when we do what is right in our own sight, instead of what's right in the sight of God, things go downhill very, very quickly. And when I look at this chapter, what I do not see is some gigantic sin, something crazy like you kind of see in chapter 19. What I see in this chapter is a series of small events and a series of small mistakes that take something that started out good, right? Israel wanted to deal with the people from the city of Gilead. They should have. In fact, Deuteronomy 13 tells them they needed to go and kill those men, and I'm okay with that. Those men probably, what, low number 10, high number 30, they needed to be dealt with. They did. But how do we go from that to 65,000 people dead and a tribe of Israel almost wiped off the planet? It's just a series of slow, small mistakes and sins in every single one of them that I read in this chapter, I've been guilty of. And they build up. And left unchecked, they just create chaos. So that's what this chapter is. It's a warning to us. It's a series of small mistakes that I think we've all made, that we all will continue to make, that we just need to check in our hearts before we get out of control. Ready to jump in? Okay, here we go. Verse 1 and 2 is an emergency meeting. It says, Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Okay, they got a piece of uh, dead body in the mail, and uh, they're like, this is an issue. Let's get together. And it says that they gathered as one man unto the Lord. This is the first time in the book of Judges, which spans 400 years, that the children of Israel have all gathered together as unto the Lord. Something they are told to do yearly, multiple times a year. 
Okay, so a little digression, but it'll tie back in, I promise. It's pop quiz time for my Wednesday night core Edgewater. Okay, you guys are Edgewater core. How many of you can tell me, and we're just gonna raise hands if you know, what are the four pillars of Edgewater? The four pillars that we stand for as a church. These are the four things that we are all about. Right, I looked them up. No, um, I knew them. All right, I was gonna explain them to you, but instead I'm just gonna have like one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers explain them to you. So it's only like a two-minute video, and then we'll go from there. As elders, we discussed, what is Edgewater? And we'd go back and forth, and what are we about if we were just kind of, if I was gonna give the methodology of what we're about to somebody simply, how would I do that? So as elders, we just, we ran this around, 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 around. There was a Sunday that I wasn't teaching, so I just took a day essentially and just sat down and tried to get all the notes that we had and, and formulate what, what does this look like? And we came up with four pillars. So number one is corporate worship. And we have a verse from Acts there where the church all got together when Paul came home and they just talked about the great things God had done, right? And Paul's an Old Testament scholar. He'd have been throwing out scripture. Awesome, awesome. So, so, so that's number one. We get together Sundays, Wednesdays, other times corporately and we worship. When, when most people think about worship, they think about singing songs. That's praise. Worship is a lifestyle. So we come together and demonstrate just a little tangible. Hey, this is the lifestyle of the believer. Studying scripture, loving one another, praying, those kind of things. Having fellowship, knowing each other. It's just like a little microcosm of what everything else is supposed to be. So that's corporate worship. Number two, and that is, you could say, loving God as well. Number two is community. That we're not supposed to be islands. We're supposed to be connected together. The two great commands of Jesus are love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that's number two, community. You need to be around a group of people that keep you accountable, but even more than that, that love you and walk with you and care about you. When, when good things happen to celebrate and when bad things happen to, to Galatians 6.1, bear that burden with you, all right? So number two is community. Number three, we feel like celebration is something that maybe Christians don't do enough of. We serve the general who crushed Satan's head at Normandy. How can you not get excited about that? How can you not celebrate that? How can you, who has it better than us, right? Who has it better than the believer in this world and in the one to come? So we should be demonstrating in our neighborhoods, in the park, wherever we're at, a joyful, rejoicing, celebrating spirit. And then lastly, mission. That we're called to do something, join in with Jesus to push back and push evil back out of the city of Grants Pass, out of my family, out of myself, right? I partner in that work. So mission, we should all have mission. Somehow God has called you and me to a mission at your home, in your job, wherever you're at, we're gonna be on mission. The four pillars of Edgewater. We've been talking a lot lately about how the church is, we're the last buttress of truth in community, right? We're supposed to be upholding truth. Well, these are the pillars that allow us to do that corporate worship, community, celebration, and mission. It's why we do things like uh, 
like the, oh my goodness, soapbox derby, right? To celebrate, to get together, to gather, to enjoy each other, to fellowship. What is the one thing that all four of those have in common? They require the saints to gather together because it's really, really, really important for God's people to gather together. And I wonder how this chapter would have played out differently if God's people had been gathering together on a regular basis. If the Benjamites knew the other tribes, if the other tribes knew the Benjamites, if one guy's like, you know what? I, something's weird here with the Benjamites trying to defend those guys and pitch and battle with us. I'm going to go talk to Steve. Like I saw him last week. We we're having a barbecue together. Let me see if I can get to the bottom of this. It's really really important. That's why God mandates that we gather. We gather together. That's why I'm so thankful for Wednesday nights where we get to take a break in the middle of the week and gather. The first mistake that they made is they failed to gather together as believers. But it's beyond just church when I think of gathering, because I also think of like your family, like family events, family vacations, family trips. They don't have to be time or money. It's just energy to put into. What are you doing with your family? Are you gathering and celebrating or is everybody sitting on their own device? How about your marriage? Like when's the last time you looked at your spouse and you're like, honey, we need to have a talk and it wasn't because one of you was in trouble. It's because we just need to have a talk. We just need to dream together and plan together because it's, you can still fight with people that you've been celebrating with, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. It's the first mistake they make. They failed to gather together. Okay. Next we have verses three through seven. After they've all come together, we have a hasty trial. Here we go. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces, as you do, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. They have a speedy, hasty trial. There was a process for this set out. They are supposed to have multiple witnesses. They are supposed to do in-depth investigation. Yeah, the people needed to be dealt with, but all we have is the word of one witness. And that word is not quite like the previous chapter, is it? You guys notice a couple subtle little changes? First, he says, it was the leaders of the town of Gibeah. Mm, the previous chapter just called them worthless fellows. But hey, if it's the leaders, then they're a little bit more demonized and I'm a little bit more vindicated, aren't I? And then he says they meant to kill me. Well, technically, they meant to know you. But maybe he didn't want to admit that. And then finally, um, he 
completely leaves out the fact that he threw his concubine out the door. He's like, they took my concubine. No, you kicked her out of the door. And then you took a long night's sleep. Mistake number three is this. When you've been victimized, which he has, beware the tendency to demonize. What he's done here is this. He's tried to make them look worse than they are and him a little bit better than he was. Oh, it was a tragedy. Absolutely. But we have to be very, very careful when we've been wronged, when we're bringing an accusation, just stick with the truth. Just stick with the facts. It's important to not mess with those because that's mistake number two. He demonizes them, which makes them all too quick to jump to judgment. But then mistake number three is this. They got and took bad advice. I think this is really interesting because verse one tells us they gathered as one people unto the Lord. And then verse seven says, and then he asked advice of the people. And I'm wondering how many times I've done this. How many times I've come to church and gathered with you guys as unto the Lord and had an issue going on in my life or a problem, and instead of looking to the Lord to find a solution, instead of looking to Scripture to find a solution, I ask advice from some of you guys. Not that you're wrong, not that you're bad, but where does the best advice come from? It comes from the Word. Where are we getting our advice? Parents, right? I mean, parents, where are you getting advice about how to parent your kids? Is it from some mommy blogger? Right? Is it from your friends who have raised little hellions? Right? <laughs> or are you going back to the word? Well, you, you, can't, you can't spank a child. It's, it harms their, their fragile little psyche. That's bad advice. That's bad advice. Because it's not the advice of the word. They gathered together as unto the Lord, but then they asked advice from each other. And that was a mistake. But when it comes to advice, I think we also need to be careful when we're dispensing advice. Okay, because there are times where, and it's the value of us gathering. Remember, we just talked about how important it is for all of us to gather. Because there is collective wisdom, and we are supposed to be getting advice and learning from each other. But I think we need to be very, very careful when people ask us for advice. Because it's very flattering, isn't it? When someone asks you for advice, it's flattering. And so I have found myself just starting to spout off an answer, and I'm like, I don't even know if that's, I've sounded good. I mean, it sounded good. I can make it sound good. But was it right? Hmm, I wonder. We should be taking people back to the word. You want my advice? What, what does the word say about this? So years ago, I was in my early 20s, and I had some friends of friends who were married which in your early 20s, there's not a lot of married people in your sphere, right? And they were having marital problems. And so every time we were at like a collective event or whatever, the wife would corner me and start asking me questions and then like telling me about the things that were going on in our marriage. And I'm an idiot. I'm not, I, I'm not figuring out what's going on. And then she got my phone number and she started calling me. And at one point, like all of a sudden, finally my 21-year-old male brain clicked in. And I'm like, oh, this is, a, this is a problem. Like she's after me. And right in that moment, the Holy Spirit gave me something to say that I've used a thousand times since then. I was on the phone with her, and I said, do you really want my advice? And she's like, yeah. I said, you really want my advice? She said, yeah. I said, here it is. Get better advice. 
I'm not a woman. I'm not married. Why in the world are you asking for my advice? My advice? Get better advice. And that was the last time we talked. (laughs) I think sometimes we need to be willing to say that. You want my advice? First of all, let's go back to the word. Let's both get better advice. But maybe it is something I, I have some knowledge about. Maybe it is something I can counsel with. Or maybe it's not. And I just start spouting off because I'm flattered. Right? Let's be careful. And finally, one more thing about advice. Because I think it's, especially in our culture with Facebook and the exchange of ideas, it's wonderful. But man, if you're going to get advice, get it from fruit trees. Right? Get it from people whose lives are producing fruit. I don't care if you're famous. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you have a thousand followers on Twitter. Are you producing fruit? Right? If you want to get advice about how to be a good parent, here's what you do. Find someone whose kids you actually like. Not them. You don't have common interests with them. You don't golf together like, I enjoy your kids. I actually like being around them. They're a little older than my kids. What did you do? Get advice from fruit trees. Because it's okay to get advice, right? It's okay to get advice. There are, we go through marital problems. We go through issues. But you should be getting advice from your girlfriend who's on her second marriage and her third martini, right? That's not, Okay. <laughs> And men, we should ask for advice more, first of all, men, but don't get it from your poker buddies. Like, don't, okay? We just need to be really careful. Are their lives producing fruit? Because I don't think there's a single person in Judges I'd like to get advice from. And that's who they take their advice from, and then off they go on their next step, which is going to be tragic. Okay? So they've had this hasty trial. Now, verses 9 through 11, they're going to make an emotional judgment. Here's their emotional judgment. Um, Actually, it's 8 through 11. And all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. They make an emotional judgment. They acted, mistake number four, out of anger and not out of love. What we have to remember about God is that even when you read in Deuteronomy 13 that God says he wants these men who committed these atrocities in Judges 19 to be put to death, he's not doing it out of anger, he's doing it out of love. They need to be put to death to protect my other children. They need to be put to death to protect people from them and from themselves because they're just on this terrible downhill slide. That's why God is slow to anger. That's why God says he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. Where's that heart in Israel? Where's that heart to say our number one priority here is that those people in Gibeah would come to repentance? I don't see that anywhere. No, they just need to be punished. 
Where's the heart to restore or to care for or to find out the other people who are involved in this and, and bring them to conviction? If we're going to be people to administer God's justice, we need to be people who are submitted to God's patience because God is patient. They took no time here. They're just, oh man, we must act right now. And you might say like, well, of course they have to act right now because what if they delay and Gibeah does it again? Everybody knows what Gibeah is accused of, okay? I don't think they're getting many wandering travelers right now, okay? It's, they're okay. They're an isolated little town. We can take time. We can seek reconciliation. We can seek justice as it's supposed to be, but we can be patient in that. These men, they're acting out of anger and not out of love. I had a boss when I was first in retail management, and I remember one time that uh, one of my employees had done something, and can't even remember what it was, but I was ticked. It's flaming mad. And I'm like, Whew. And he says, you got to go talk to him right now. And I go, I am way too mad. He goes, no, you have to talk to him before you stop being mad. And even at 19, I was like, that's terrible advice. Like, that's like the opposite of what I should be doing. Like, that's, no. That's what they do right here. They don't wait to cool off. They don't wait to gather facts. They act out of anger. And there's an emotional judgment. And that leads, I think, directly into the next section where they're going to be picking sides. Verses 12 through 17 is when they're picking sides. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Not, hey, what happened? Not, hey, could you tell us about this? Not, hey, we need to get a witness. What, they just come in accusingly. What evil has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge Israel from evil. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Israel says, hey, we need to come and get that town of Gibeah. And the Benjaminites say, over our dead bodies, you're not coming in here. You're not taking our brothers. And this is mistake number five. The Benjamites chose their neighbors, their community, you could even possibly say their culture, instead of the Lord. Hey, and maybe they had every reason to be a little ticked at the rest of Israel. They didn't know him very well. They hadn't been gathering together. Israel just comes in accusingly, and Benjamin just gets back to the corner and is like, I'm just going to put my dukes up and fight you. I'm just going to fight. Instead of pursuing truth, instead of saying, whoa, okay, if this really did happen, we need to find out about that. I think we need to be very, very careful about when we side with our friends or we side with our family members or, or especially when we side with our kids over siding with the truth. 
and what's really supposed to be. Benjamites, they choose their brethren over the Lord, and it sets up the battle lines. All right? So then we have verse 18. It's kind of this little standalone verse. I titled verse 18, oh, wait, let's pray. Okay? That's what happens. Verse 18, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Okay, they've all gathered together. They've asked for each other's advice. They had this hasty trial where they didn't really gather all the information. They made this judgment in anger. They stormed in, which caused their brother to stand up against them. They're ready to fight in the battle, and someone's like, oh, wait a minute, we should pray. We should do that. And they're like, oh, yeah, perfect, let's pray. Hey, Lord, who should go up there and kick their butts first? That's this prayer. It's, it, and so you just stand back and you're like, man. But then I, um, then I look at my own life and I think, man, how often was prayer an afterthought? Right? How often did I like, get myself completely backed into a corner and then prayed? How often have I gotten battle lines drawn with someone in my own life and, and oh, wait a minute, I should probably pray. All right, Lord, what do I say to really get them? Right? Prayer is an afterthought. How does this story change if it starts with prayer? What if verse one was, all the people of Israel gathered together and prayed unto the Lord to see what he would do? I think maybe 64,880 men survive. We still got to get rid of those 20, but everybody else gets to live through this, right? They started with prayer. I need to start with prayer. Every conflict, every challenge, every conversation I'm going to have with my kids and my spouse, that I, I need to start with prayer. I need to start my day with prayer. I need to end my day with prayer because you can blow off the handle and you can make some really stupid decisions if you've spent your whole day in prayer, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. We need to be people of prayer. Okay, now, 19 through 23, battle, day one. Here we go. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up in the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. 600,000? Or is it 400,000? I don't know. Where are my notes? There's a, a, a whole lot of dudes. First, way not as many people. And they got trampled. They got absolutely beat up. 400,000, that's right. Do you remember the last time in Judges where someone gathered together a really big army? It was Gideon. Do you remember how many people he gathered? I looked it up. 32,000. Gideon gathered 32,000 people, and what did God say? 
That's too many. If you go up there with 32,000, you're going to take all the credit and the victory won't be of the Lord's. These guys have 400,000 men. And they did a mistake that I make all too often. And they put all their faith in their own abilities. We got this. You could title this, this little section, We Got This, Battle Day One. Right? We're just going to go in there and crush them. Oops. No, you're not. And when I put my faith in my own abilities, my own talents, I, I get beat up. But when I come to the Lord and I say, Lord, I got two loaves, I got two fishes, everything else is up to you. That's when we see victory. That's when we see victory. That's faith, right? So they put too much faith in their own abilities, all right? But we're going to go do it again. Battle day two, 24-25. Here we go. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them at Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. It's been two days, 40,000 people are dead. It's not going well. And I don't really have any mistakes from this section, but I do have to stand back and ask the glaring question, which is, they did kind of pray that second day, right? I mean, the prayer the first day was pretty, I mean, they prayed, but kind of worthless, but they kind of prayed the second day. They said, hey, should we go up? And God was like, go up. And then they got their tails handed to them again. So like, what's up with that? What's going on here? A couple things. First is, are there any other like military history geeks in the room? Okay, so like three of us will enjoy this. It's cool. <laughs> Gibeah, def- it never says that God handed Israel over into the hands of Gibeah. It doesn't say that. You'll see that phrase many, many times in the Bible where God will hand Israel over to the Babylonians or hand Israel over to the Assyrians, that God has had an active role in, hey, my children need to learn something, and so I'm going to allow them to go through this. It does not say that here. And it's actually not that surprising that the Benjamites and the people of Gibeah would defeat the Israelites. If you study military history at all, here's what you've got. You've got a massive force that does not work together on a regular basis. They're from all these different tribes. They probably don't have a single central commander who they're used to following. They don't know the landscape. They don't know the territory. And they just form up in battle lines. On the other hand, you've got a smaller, mobile, swift force. You've got 700 men who can sling a stone. They can actively strike and then withdraw, strike and withdraw. They know their territory. They live here. They know what trees to hide behind. They know where the caves are. It's not actually that surprising that there's a defeat from a military standpoint. And God didn't give them up. I think what happened is this. I think it's a Romans chapter one thing where God says, hey, I'm, that's, are you that bloodthirsty? Is that really what you want to do? Okay. And God gave them up to their bloodthirstiness. Because God will never give up on us, but he will give us up. He will give us up to our sin when we're hell-bent on it because he knows sin has consequences. 
consequences will lead us back to him. He knows. I think he gave them up. And so the question I have looking at my own life and kind of like at us is, are there people in our lives that we need to like not give up on? You never give up on people. But is there anybody in my life that I need to give up? Like stop protecting them? Stop enabling them? Stop mitigating all the consequences of their sin? I'm not saying that I'm supposed to, that we are ever supposed to give someone up to their sin. I don't think we're called to that. We're supposed to give someone up to the Lord. All right, Lord, you need to be involved in this person's life now. You actively bring them to a place of repentance. I can't do it anymore, and I think I'm hurting more than helping. God gave them up, right? And here's the result of that. It's that they have a much humbler approach Verses 26 through 28. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days saying, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers? the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. This is a very different approach from that first prayer. We're going to fast. We're going to spend time. We're going to ask an actual question. Lord, is this really what you want us to be doing? We're going to be with a priest, meaning we're going to get godly counsel. And God says, yeah, it's time go up against Benjamin. I will give them into your hands. It's a much humbler approach. And so now we have verse 29 through 35. It's the battle day three, or Benjamin's defeated. It's a long section. I almost fell asleep today while I was listening to it in the car, okay? So everybody can shake it off a little bit, all right? Ready? It's a bunch of just battle details. It's boring as all heck. Here we go. All right, so Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as other times, and as at other times, they begin to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to the Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and to kill about 30 men in the open country of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us free, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Merah And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen, chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All those were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Okay, we got a new plan this time. We're gonna set up our battle lines. We're gonna also have an ambush over there. Benjamin comes out. We're going to turn tail and run, just like we did last time. They're going to chase us. When they're away from the city, 
all you guys sneak into the city. Then they're going to turn around and see, oh no, our city's on fire. They're going to start running back and we'll get them in a pincher move. Okay? That's, that's what just happened. And if you didn't catch it, we're going to go through the whole thing again in the next 11 verses. Same story. Here we go. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush who they had set up against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel who are fleeing and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city. It's a pretty good signal. Hey, the city's on fire. Something's going on. Okay? It's a good signal. Um, and I lost my place. Then the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohiah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways. And they were pursued hard to get them. And 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. That is a terrible battle. And 25,100 men are dead. It's this really interesting section in verse 35 where I think we see something that's telling. Verse 35 tells this, and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of the battle of Benjamin that day. Mistake number eight is this. They wanted vengeance, not justice. And I kind of understand that. 40,000 of their brethren are dead, but they've got a role to play in that. And so when God defeats Benjamin, Israel destroys them. I don't think that was the intention. I think when Benjamin was defeated, he could have been defeated. They were fleeing. We could have come in and done justice at that point, but they don't. And so an entire tribe of Israel is almost wiped off the face of the earth. We need to be very, very careful when we're pursuing justice that we don't confuse it with vengeance. Vengeance is whose? That's right. That is a promise. It's an absolute promise. So when we feel wronged, when we feel hurt, and we think vengeance is necessary, God's promised. Ah, don't worry about it. I got it. That's my job. Your job can be justice, yeah, but it's also peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. They want vengeance. Verse 47, but 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the people of Israel 
turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Final mistake, this is a pretty disproportionate response. You had something done poorly to one of our citizens in your city, so we're gonna burn every single one of your cities to the ground. It's a disproportionate response. There was a lot of mistakes made. They failed to gather together. They demonized their enemies. They took bad advice and gave bad advice. They acted out of anger instead of out of love. They chose sides with their neighbors instead of siding with the truth. Prayer was an afterthought. They put too much faith in their own abilities. They wanted vengeance, vengeance not justice. And here's the result. 65,000 men of Israel are dead. And Israel is weaker. What happens when they're attacked now from outside? They have 65,000 fewer soldiers. And that's not including the people who are injured. When we fight amongst ourselves because we fail to gather because we make hasty decisions, because we're pursuing justice or we're pursuing vengeance instead of pursuing grace and love, and we're not enjoying God's patience. As a church body, as a body of believers, we get weaker, and we are less and less able to fight our enemies, and our enemies are strong. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't walk down these paths. Yes, there was, there was a wrong done. And there should have been an appropriate response and dealt with. But it got completely out of hand. And now the nation is weak. And when we've been wronged or we see a wrong among us, yeah, it needs to be dealt with. We need to deal with it correctly and in grace and love and a spirit of reconciliation. And man, if we just keep gathering together and celebrating, maybe, maybe we won't have that many problems. Maybe we'll, like I said, it's a lot harder to have this kind of animosity among people that you celebrate with, right? It's this really heavy, tough chapter, but I think it's so important for us to see because we are in the midst of a battle and we need to be strong as a body. And in order to be strong, we need to be fighting shoulder to shoulder and back to back instead of with each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for judges, for the hard chapters, the chapters that challenge me, the chapters that put a mirror to my own mistakes and sin and show me the slippery, slippery slope that they can turn into. I pray that you would protect me from these, that I would be a person of prayer first and foremost that I would seek my counsel and advice from the word first and from fruit trees second, that I would be a person who pursues reconciliation and grace, not drawing battle lines, not trusting in my own abilities. Be with us this day in Jesus' name, amen.